Hello and welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name's Riaz and I'm at Rotterdam Medical Centre in Holland. I'm joined by Dr. Alma Dalhas, a consultant anaesthetist and a senior interventional pain physician here at Rotterdam Medical Centre. Dr. Dilhaz is the author of our article, Diagnosis and Management, Complications Associated with Interthecal Drug Delivery Systems, and has over 30 years of experience in this field. Dr. Dilhaz, welcome. Okay, thank you. What are the indications for using interthecal drug delivery systems? The indications for interthecal drug delivery are different. They are refractory intractable pain, cancer and non-cancer spasticity and dystonia. That are the normal indications for interthecal drug delivery. What are the benefits of using interthecal drug delivery? The benefits of interthecal drug delivery are that it is, first of all, it's more effective. That means that in cases where a solution not could, could not be found, now it is possible to treat that kind of patients. That's, and the second point is uh, you can do it with a lower dose and with less side effects. Can you tell us the commonly available interthecal drug delivery devices on the market and an overview of how they work? The drug delivery systems of implantable pumps are different. There are mainly, you can say, there are two systems. And one of them is the non-programmable mechanical constant flow pump. Genfusate, Cotman, Prometra, Isomet and Synchromet are examples of that. The principle of such a cast-driven mechanical pump is that during refilling of the reservoir, the fluor carbon gas in the gas chamber will be compressed. Then the compressed gas expands debit dripping medication from the drug reservoir to the connected intrathecal catheter. That kind of pumps has a preset delivery rate, normally 0.5 to 2 ml per day. And that means that those changes only can be made by changing the concentration of the medication fluid. Another type of, of pump is the programmable pump. The most of them are the Syngromat pump, but also another pump like the Prometra is used. This kind of pumps offer more flexibility in dosing by interrogating readout of the pump and also, with the programming, drug changes can be made. Further advantage of this pump is that it has built-in alarms control for pump failure and empty reservoir. In our center, we are using the single med programmable pump. To such a kind of pump, an intrathecal catheter is connected. And the pump has a catheter access port who has a direct entrance to the intrathecal catheter. And then, via the catheter access port, medication fluid in the catheter and CSF can be aspirated in cases of troubleshooting. And what are the commonly used drugs in these devices? There are 
two types. There are so-called on-label and off-label drugs. And that means there is a difference in, in the US and for instance in other countries. In the US, only on-label drugs are allowed and that are morphine, siconitide and baclofen. Off-label use are for instance hydromorphone, clonidine, fentanyl, local anesthetics or mixtures of them. As an expert in this field, what motivated you to write this article? I would say there are several motivations for writing the article, such as my personal practice in a tertiary referring academic hospital for intradecal drug delivery problems, thereby confronted with a lack of awareness among health care professionals. But last, not least, the consequence consequences of intratecal drug delivery failure. How would you classify the problems associated with intrathecal drug delivery systems? I would uh, classify the complications in, in drug delivery related complications, MRI related and human errors. The majority of the intrathecal drug delivery complications are related to the intrathecal catheter itself or to the catheter implantation. Known catheter complications are, for instance, migration, lacerations, occlusion, or disconnection. With careful handling during implantations, complication can be prevented to a certain extent. Experience is thereby an important factor for the reducing catheter-related complications. The currently used Ascenda catheter of the Syngromat pump seems to be an improvement, but has the disadvantage of poor visibility on X-ray. However, in clinical practice, the caregiver should be aware that the more vulnerable older catheters are still in use. Less common are pump-related complications like rotor corrosion, electric power failure, low battery life. In the past, a serious problem was the rotor corrosion. This has led to abrupt cessation of intrathecal drug delivery, resulting in a high risk, in particular for baclofen, of a withdrawal syndrome. <clears throat> then the MRI-related complications. The programmable single Med pump is compatible with MRI with a maximum of three Tesla. Because of rotorstall induced by the magnetic field of the MRI, there is in that period no drug delivery. The pump should automatically restart after termination of the MRI scan. However, sometimes it takes hours before the pump restarts. Normally, in clinical practice, a temporary pump stall has no consequences. When the pump does not restart, a reboot can be attempted by programming a small bolus delivery. However, should the restart fail, an emergency pump replacement must be performed. The consequences is that when an MRI is scheduled, also a pump read 
for control of the restart should be scheduled. And that's a problem in practice. Especially when an MRI is performed in a hospital which is not equipped with a pump programmer. Also, the programmable Prometra pump is MRI compatible. However, in advance the medication should be removed from the reservoir, the inner tubing and the intratecal catheter. The reservoir should then refilled, be refilled with a preservative saline solution and the system should be programmed at zero flow rate. These steps are required because the magnetic fields opens the pump valves which results in an immediate entire discharge of the medication in the system which results in an overdose. The consequences here is that an MRI should only be entrusted to experienced clinicians. Then the fixed rate delivery pumps are powered by a gas pressure chamber surrounding a flexible inner drug reservoir. An increase in temperature induced by the MRI increases the delivery rate. In clinical practice, the transient increase of drug delivery has no consequences. Then talking about a human error. Theoretically, a mistake can be made in the pharmacy where the medication is prepared or diluted. However, this is very uncommon. More common are mistakes during refills with miscalculation, unjustified pump programming and mistakes for a timely appointment for refilling. Although the pump has an acoustic near-empty alarm, in some situations the patients or caregivers misses the warning. Generally spoken, for prevention, human errors should be prevented always by double-check procedure. Thank you for that excellent summary. Can you now explain to us what the consequences are for the patients when these complications happen? I would classify the clinical aspects of complications associated with drug delivery devices in overdose, withdrawal, CSF leak, granuloma formation and obstruction in CSF flow and infection. An overdose is usually the result of an incorrect pump programming, a pump failure, or in case of the premature pump failure to empty, to empty the pump prior to the MRI. A baclofen overdose is characterized by ascending hypotonia, hypertension, hypothermia, nausea, vomiting, respiratory depression, seizures, and decreased conscious level from somnolence to coma and even death. Not all the mentioned features will be happening in all cases. In the beginning, nausea, vomiting, decreased conscious level are the most common clinical symptoms. Talking about an opioid overdose, I mentioned in the, my, uh, my article a lot of clinical symptoms, but not all of the mentioned features will be happening in all cases. It's important to realize that in the beginning, itching, nausea, vomiting, decreased conscious level are the most common clinical symptoms. 
is that clonidine overdose is uncommon while its clinical use is very limited. You can find the symptomatology in the article. When we are talking about siconotide overdose, it's relatively common. It's related to the narrow therapeutic window and the delayed onset and offset of analgesia. The consequences therefore is that during dose titration, mild overdose can occur. The common symptomatology are mentioned in the article. What are the management strategies when an overdose happens? Uh, the management of an overdose includes, first of all, supportive treatment with close monitoring. In severe cases, lowering of the intrathecal drug level by aspiration of CSF via a lumbar puncture and a re-injection of the same volume with preservative saline is the first approach. Normally, about 30 ml CSF will be aspirated. In an opioid overdose, you have the advantage of the availability of an antagonist like naloxone, which can be delivered intravenously. To prevent damage of the programmable pump, the pump should be restarted within 48 hours after stopping of the pump. Only reducing the flow rate may not be adequate to to manage the symptoms of an overdose. In highly concentrated solutions, it could be necessary to remove the medication out of the whole delivery system, including the pump reservoir, inner tubing and the intrathecal catheter. These steps are complex and should only be entrusted by experienced clinicians. Can you tell us more about baclofen withdrawal? Yes, the baclofen withdrawal is very dangerous and the management is challenging. And the reason is that in the beginning, the clinical symptoms are difficult to recognize that from other, from other clinical situations. Let me say it in such a way. When, you are, when there is a patient who has an exacerbation of spasticity and fever, many physicians would think that there is the reason of the exacerbation is the fever. But in baclofen withdrawal, the reason of the fever can be caused by withdrawal. And that means that in the beginning, the diagnosis of withdrawal of baclofen is often missed. The next step is also challenging because it creates respiratory depression, hypotension and tachycardia. And many physicians would say that is related to a pneumonia. It's related to fever. And so and the, <clears throat> the consequence is that the patient is referred to the wrong doctor. And that is very challenging. So the problem there is that the symptomatology is not to be suspected by clinicians unfamiliar with baclofen withdrawal. And therefore what I have said, it's not uncommon that in this stage it will be diagnosed as the pneumonia. And the risk is that in a further stage a potential fatal multi-organ failure occurs. Can you talk us through how to manage a baclofen withdrawal? 
first of all, supportive treatment with close monitoring is required. The problem of baclofen withdrawal is that we are not able to administer baclofen intravenously. It can only be done by oral, but that's insufficient to treat the withdrawal. You can try intravenous benzodiazepines, but that are not a real CABA-B receptor agonist. It's benzodiazepines are CABA-A and agonist, and therefore are not the ideal drug for treatment of baclofen withdrawal. But because you have n- no other solution, you can give benzodiazepines. In severe cases, immediate restoration of intratecal baclofen administrations is indicated. You can do that with an external catheter, for instance. Can you tell us more about the CSF leakages that happen as a consequence of these intratecal drug delivery systems? Yes, uh, CSF leaks can be caused by persistent dural opening at the catheter insertion, catheter pump or catheter-catheter connection, disconnection or damage, a shared or a perforated catheter. A leak can result in a treatment failure of even in a withdrawal syndrome. More common, a CSF leak is associated with postpinal headache, although this symptom can be absent. More pronounced leaks leads to local accumulation outside the spinal canal. This swelling can be dorsal, but even ventral, as shown on figure 2, by passage of CSF along the catheter to the pump pocket. A severe leak can lead to intracranial hypervolemia with the risk of a subdural hematoma. The origin of a leak can be determined First, by X-ray, excluding a device-related disorder. And when this does not reveal the cause, it can be done by catheter export, catheter access port, CT myelography or indium scintigraphy. The treatment for a leakage is to identify the cause and if it is device-related to perform a surgical restoration. In other cases, one or more homolog epidural blood patches can be performed. In figure two in the article, there is a picture that shows swelling at the site where an intrathecal drug delivery system has been implanted. Can you talk us through the thought process that you would go through to identify the cause of swelling in this particular case? Yes, uh, the patient (coughs) was uh, operated for pump implantation. You see that uh, at the suture. Um, in 24 hours, the patient came to our hospital with the swelling, as you see on the, in the figure. The question thereby is then, is that CSF leakage? Is that a hematoma or is it seroma? A hematoma could be, but it's, when it's, un- it's not expectable because then normally it's, you have a, a colored swelling. A seroma is also not 
to be expected because in 24 hours a seroma such as severe seroma would not occur. In the patients of figure 2, we decided for local drainage of the severe, local swelling, and performed two blood patches. In the article, you mention infection as a potential complication of interthecal drug delivery system. What particular aspects of this should we as practicing anaesthetists be aware of? First of all, uh, implantable device infections can be the result of a surgical implantation, a refilling procedure of a hematogenous seeding from a distant site. The clinical manifestation of local infection includes local pain, protrusion, erythema and fever. The risk, however, is the development of meningitis. When a meningitis happens, it's often caused by a Staphylococcus aureus with the typical symptomatology of a meningitis. However, the clinician should be aware of the possibility of a meningitis caused by a non-pathogenic microorganism like Staphylococcus epidermis, which caused a atypical clinical presentation, which means no signs of meningitis, including also no fever. When an infection happens at the site of these implanted devices, when would you consider explantation of the device? A superficial infection can be treated with oral antibiotics, but in progressive cases, explantation of the implanted device is required. The problem thereby is, in particular in baclofen treatment, the development of a severe life-threatening withdrawal syndrome when the device is immediately removed. Therefore, our approach is gradually reducing the dose in five days with the use of a broad-spectrum antibiotic like mirapenem and vancomycin until the causative microorganism is identified. But this is under debate in different hospitals. There are physicians who accept the risk for withdrawal syndrome by immediately removing the device. In our approach, it's not the good way to do that. The risk of a baclofen withdrawal syndrome is life-threatening and therefore in our clinic we will not do it in such a way. In the article there is a very nice flow diagram giving the readers a stepwise approach on how to deal with a potentially problematic pump. Uh, Can you please summarise this for the readers? Yes, the first step in the algorithm is the history, the physical examination, pump readouts when a programmable device is used. The next step is to exclude an empty reservoir or a pump failure by aspiration of the pump reservoir and to compare the aspired volume with the calculated volume of the pump readout. The following step is a planar radiography or a low-dose single-energy CT with 2 and 3D reconstructions as recently has been reported. The reason for a low-dose single-energy CT is that the catheter are poorly visible on plane radiography. And 
That means that the diagnosis can be missed. These steps do not reveal the cause. Advanced diagnostic procedures should be performed. In our clinic, we started with the catheter export procedure, whereby after aspiration of CSF via the catheter SS port, contrast material is injected and a CT myelography is performed. When no CSF can be aspirated from the catheter access port, or when a catheter export CT myelography does not reveal the diagnosis, indium scintigraphy will be performed. In some cases, additional MRI, lumbar purchase CT myelography, lumbar bolus injections will be performed. Finally, as a specialist working in this area, what would your advice be to somebody like myself? an anaesthetist who does not work in a specialist centre but has the potential to encounter patients that may have problematic interthecal devices. I realise that uh, most of them will, would struggle to manage this. I would advise to consult a specialist centre and inform them about the history, clinical examination and send an email with planar radiography of the lumbar thoracic vertebral column and an abdominal x-ray and when available a readout of the pump. You can further discuss that by telephone and discuss what can be done in a non-specialist center, for example like supporting treatment and to discuss for the referral to the specialist center. Dr. Dalhouse, thank you for an excellent summary of your article. For the listeners, we've talked about the common indications for inserting interthecal drug delivery systems. We've also talked about the common devices that are available in the market and their associated features we should be mindful of. We've talked about complications associated with these devices, specifically baclofen withdrawal. And finally, Dr. Dalhaz has walked us through the algorithm that is used here at Rotterdam Medical Centre when troubleshooting a problematic pump. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and please do check out the full article on our website.